podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Thursday. It is the 7th of December. Hope you're all well. Hope you enjoyed some Premier League action last night. But we had some expected results and some unexpected performances. Sheffield United 2. Sorry, no. Sheffield United 0. Liverpool 2. Virgil van Dijk and Dominic Zabozlai with the goals. Liverpool not at their best, but more than good enough to beat the Blades and move within two points of Arsenal. Sheffield United stay bottom of the league, two points behind Burnley, five points from Luton and what would be safety. But Everton still have a game to play in this round, so that could grow. Fulham five, Nottingham Forest nil. I'm not really sure what's going on with Fulham at the moment, but they have discovered 
that you can score more than one goal in a game. Uh, Fulham have scored 11 goals in their last three games. They had scored 10 in the 12 games before that. Last night, they were absolutely rampant. It will be scored. Jimenez scored. Jimenez scored again. It will be scored again. And then Tom Kearney wrapped it up late on. It is great to see Raul Jimenez scoring goals and enjoying his football because it's been a tough few years for him since that horrendous head injury. He's never quite become the player he was when he had, like, before that injury. So seeing him scoring, seeing him enjoying his football is really positive. And that's a great win for Fulham. And they move to 12th in the league. They are one point off Brentford and Chelsea, three points behind West Ham. That goal does wonders, or that game does wonders for their goal difference. They move from minus 10 to minus five, which is a lot more respectable. They've exactly the same record as Wolves. They've scored one more and they've conceded one more, but same goal difference, same points, same wins, same draws. All very, very positive. For Fulham right now, Marco Silva continues to do one of the best jobs in the Premier League. Someone not doing a particularly good job is Roy Hodgson. Crystal Palace beaten 2-0 at home last night by Bournemouth. Goals from Sinisi and Kiefer Moore. Palace were just listless. And Hodgson coming out after the game and saying that the fans have been spoiled. I'm really not sure what he's talking about. Uh, finishing 11th, 12th and 14th, a 14th in the last five seasons is not spoiling your fans. Winning no more than seven home games in a season is not spoiling your fans. And that's what the case has been for five years. Two seasons of five, a year of six and two seasons of seven. Not great. Only one home win so far this season for Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace fans have the right to be annoyed. The football they're playing is dreadful. There's no ambition. Arguably their best ever player, Will Zaha, left in the summer for free. I would imagine part of that decision that Wilf made was on Roy Hodgson being appointed as full-time manager again. It was pretty clear that Wilf had, had more than enough of Roy Hodgson the first time around. It was notable that the Wilf leaving rumours all kind of went away when it was Patrick Vieira there and Wilf was enjoying his football. Wilf left it late in the summer as well to decide that he was going to go and play for Galatasaray. So I do wonder if Palace had been ambitious in the summer and maybe gone and gotten Graham Potter, would Wilf have been convinced to stay? If I was Crystal Palace, I would be making overtures at Graham Potter right now. I think Hodgson is many years past the point of being a real Premier League manager. He has no ambition. He has no urge to finish anywhere above 12th to 13th. And I think it's time that they moved on from him. Graham Potter is a really good manager who's done really well at a club of similar size in Brighton. I don't see any reason that Crystal Palace cannot be a top half team. You look at that team... They've got good goalkeepers. Dean Henderson, obviously out injured at the moment, but he's a very good goalkeeper. Sam Johnson's a good goalkeeper. 
Mitchell's a really good left back. You've got two outstanding centre backs, and in Chris Richards, a very good third. They need a right back. Now, losing Dakure is massive, but they have Jefferson Lerma, they have Ahamada, they have Will Hughes, they have Jeffrey Schlupp. They need one more in midfield. And then in attack, I mean, you've got Matthias Franke. He's not even getting off the bench. You've got Elise, Eze, when he comes back. That's a really strong attacking midfield group. They could do with another winger. They've got Young Abue. I'd like to see him get more opportunities. And they need someone that can be more reliable in front of goal than Eduard and Mateta. So if Mateta does leave in the, in January, as has been rumoured, they need to go and bring in another striker. But <clears throat> I do think the biggest thing they need is a new manager. I just don't think Roy Hodgson should be managing in the Premier League at this point. Like that man retired a couple of years ago. And then he took on the Watford job. And what he did there was nothing short of a disgrace. Like he's claiming that the fans are spoiled. They've won one in eight at home. One in eight. And he's claiming that they're spoiled. And they're not even getting to watch good football because he refuses to play good football. For Bournemouth, though, what a turnaround. Ten points from the last four games, which when you contrast to six points from the previous 11 is a hell of a turnaround. Uh, Irola's style is now settling in. The team are reacting to what the manager's asking them to do and they're working hard for each other. Defensively, they look a lot better. In midfield, they look more solid. And they're finding ways to get goals. They go above Forrest with that win last night combined with Forrest's hammering. And I think they'd be looking at Crystal Palace, who they're now level on points with. And they're looking at Wolves and they're looking at Fulham and thinking, there's no reason we can't finish above these teams. We have every bit as much talent as these teams. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that develops for them moving forward. Brighton 2, Brentford 1. Brian and Bomo put Brentford 1 up from the penalty spot after he after um, Van Heck committed the foul in the box. Pascal Gross equalised four minutes later with a really well-taken goal. And then Jack Hinchelwood, the teenager who sort of plays here, there and everywhere for them, played it right back last night, pops up at the back post, his header, crossed the goal. Mark Flecking can't get to it. Brighton win the game and what a moment for the youngster his first goal in senior football Brentford will probably be a little bit disappointed but overall they're 11th in the league and they've done this without Ivan Tony. you wouldn't place them as having any risk of you know a collapse I think they're going to be mid bottom half but comfortable from any kind of uh, relegation battle much needed win for Brighton obviously um, they've had that bad run of form, but that's two wins out of three. Still to keep a clean sheet, still yet to keep a clean sheet in the Premier League this season, which is quite an interesting approach. But look, they'll be happy enough. They're eighth in the league. They're only two points behind Manchester United and Tottenham, who are sixth and fifth, respectively. And they've been through their blip early on. You'd expect that as they get players back. I mean, you look at the team last night and it's very clear they're in the middle of a bit of an injury crisis when Hinchelwood and Gross are playing as the fullbacks. And on the bench, you've got uh, Benesio, Baker, Boti, 
Lee Robert Kavanaugh, Luca Barrington, and Mark O'Mahony. Like they're all very, very talented, I'm sure, but they're all very, very young. But that's what they've been forced to call upon right now. I think it speaks to the fact that even with this dip, even with these injuries, Deserby continues to to do a very good job. Um, Manchester United 2, Chelsea 1. McTominay on 19, put United 1 up. Cole Palmer equalised just on the stroke of half-time. McTominay missed a big, big chance with a header. And then a second big chance when the ball bounced back to him after Sanchez saved the first one. And he could do nothing, only redirect it directly at uh, Robert Sanchez a second time. And United's performance last night was better than some of what we've seen recently, but they weren't good by any stretch. McTominay did make it 2-1 in the 69th minute to give them the win. Uh, This was a game between two bad teams, frankly. And I know United are sixth in the table. They're ahead of Newcastle, but Newcastle play tonight. They're level on points with Spurs, but Spurs play tonight. And United probably feel quite good about things. They're only three points behind City. But United shouldn't feel quite good about things. That's their first win against a top-half team. Chelsea are 10th. Chelsea aren't good. That's Chelsea's sixth defeat of the season. Between the two teams... They've lost 12 games. They've conceded 42 goals. They've only scored 44 goals. These are not good teams. These are not good teams at all. Um, But United will will take confidence from that win. Now they play Bournemouth next, and that's going to be tough considering Bournemouth are in better form, but United should still win that. But then it gets really tough for them. Then they get Bayern... They go away to Liverpool, away to West Ham, and then they get Villa. So I think United's uh, Christmas might be a bit miserable. But they'll take heart from last night's win. Um, They shouldn't take too much heart from their season to date, though. Because, like I say, they've only now beaten one team in the top half, and that's the team in 10th. They've had a very easy run of games when you look at who they have beaten. Wolves, Forest, Burnley, Brentford, Sheffield United, Fulham, Luton, Everton, and Chelsea. Like you couldn't have asked for an easier run. But what really would concern me if I was a United fan is the lack of goals. This season, Bruno Fernandes has six goals. That's pretty good for a midfielder but only three of them have come in the league. Anthony Martial has one in the league, two in all competitions. Rashford has two in the league, and that's it for all competitions. Rasmus Hoysland hasn't scored yet in the league. He has got five in the Champions League, though. Christian Eriksen scored one goal in all competitions. Garnacho's got one in the league, three in all competitions. Anthony is yet to score in any competition. Sancho obviously is not playing. He's yet to score in any competition. Scott McTominay has five league goals, making him their top league scorer by by two. 
and he's their joint top scorer. Uh, sorry, yeah, he's their joint top scorer in all competitions, along with Bruno. No, he's got one more than Bruno. Excuse me. He's got one more than Bruno in all competitions. Scott McTominay is Manchester United's primary attacking weapon. That is cause for concern. Mason Mount, who they spent $60 on, yet to score a goal this season. He's an attacking midfielder. They're not very good at all. And they've got some serious issues that they're going to need to address when they start to play tough teams. Final game last night, the performance of the night, Aston Villa won, Manchester City nil. That doesn't tell the tale of the tape. 22 shots for Villa, two for Manchester City. Erling Haaland had two shots in the span of about 10 to 15 seconds, well, a shot and then a header, which Emi Martinez saved. And that's the only shots City had in the entire game. Those shots were in like the 13th minute or something like that. It was early in the game. City didn't have a shot after that. City didn't have a corner in the entire game. Villa had 22 shots, seven on target and six corners. Villa dominated the game. Controlled where it was played. Cut City open. Should have scored a couple more. Ederson made a couple of good saves. They hit the post. They missed a couple of chances that they should have taken. But they were so much better than City last night. It, it was it was very strange to see. You don't generally see a Pep Guardiola team get outplayed like that. And I would argue it's it's definitely the most his team have been outplayed in a game since probably the the game against Liverpool at Anfield where Liverpool beat them 4-3, but City got two late goals to make it look a little bit closer than it actually was. You just don't see City have these troubles. This is only the second time that City under Pep have gone four games without a win. The the other time was in his first season there. Now, they will point to the fact that these four games where they haven't won have been Chelsea away, Liverpool, Tottenham, and now Villa. So a, a big six rival and three of the five best teams in the country. But still, they don't look quite themselves. Now, they had, didn't have Rodri last night. They didn't have KDB, obviously. They are missing Ilkay Gundogan. They're missing him significantly. They're only just getting Kovacic and Nunes back from injury now. I still think they'll win the league. I think they'll go on a strong run once they have their pieces together. It would be no surprise if they went and spent in January. But there is just certain signs of weakness in this team that we hadn't seen before. And that should be something that the other teams competing for the title, Arsenal, Liverpool, Villa, I think you've got to throw them in just at the moment based on current form, based on how dominant they are at home, seven wins from seven. The fact that they're now third in the league, they're only four points off top. They play Arsenal at home at the weekend. I fancy them to beat Arsenal at home at the weekend. If they win that game, only one point behind Arsenal. Now, Liverpool play Crystal Palace and will likely win win that game and go top. 
But there's a you know Villa can solidify themselves in the top four this weekend if they beat Arsenal. And you, when you're in that position and you're only a couple of points off top, you have to be talked about in those. Even if you don't think they'll sustain it, which I don't, you still have to talk about them when we talk about teams that could win the league. Because look, Villa could go in January and spend 150 million. They've got the money. They've got the owners that would be willing to do it. They've got a really good director of football who's an outstanding talent spotter. They're well set up. You know, you look at that team defensively. Emmy Martinez is outstanding. Ezra Cons, I really like it right back. Carlos and Torres, they formed a very good partnership. Dina or Moreno at left back give them that attacking outlet. Kamara and Luis are brilliant together in midfield. McGinn is playing well. Watkins is playing well. Yuri Thielemans is now starting to contribute. Obviously, Diaby's had a really good start to the season, but now he's just hit a little bit of a dip, so Emery's taken him out of the team. they still got him and Jacob Ramsey to come into that team that started last night and ran Villa off the pitch, or ran City off the pitch. Jacob Ramsey could be a massive, massive addition. Because I would argue Ramsey and Diaby are two of their five best players with Kamara, Watkins and Luis. They're a formidable team. They really are a formidable team. There's no one position now you'd look at and say that's a weakness. Like John McGinn is playing the football of his career. Emery really has him homing. You could upgrade on him for sure, but it might just upset the apple cart a little bit to do it mid-season. Other than that, I mean, maybe you go and you buy an, a, a, an upgraded left back, but they've got two decent left backs. Doesn't seem like you should spend money there at the moment. Maybe their best option is just to look for a bit more depth. Maybe to bring in another striker. Said before, I'd love to see them go and get Ivan Tony or Tammy Abraham, but Ivan Tony in particular. I just love to see him and Watkins together. I think it'd be absolutely incredible. And then longer term, you're going to have Diaby and, and Ramsey as the wide midfielders. You've got that double pivot in defence. You might look look to upgrade left back. You might look to upgrade on Carlos. But this is a very good team with a very good manager, very well-run club, and a club very much on the up. So they were brilliant last night. Congrats to them. Hopefully they're brilliant again at the weekend because if they play like that against Arsenal they will beat Arsenal. They will beat Arsenal. Arsenal are not as good as Man City. Even with City in the poor run of form they're in, Arsenal are not as good as Man City. They're weaker defensively. They're certainly weaker in goal. They don't have the same experience of managing their way through games so they're not playing well. And Arsenal looked very, very shaky against Luton. Very, very shaky. And especially on set pieces, and Villa are a big team with Watkins, with Carlos, with Torres, all in that box on set pieces. They've got great set piece delivery from the likes of McGinn and Dina and Douglas Luis, obviously. I think they're going to cause Arsenal a lot of problems. I think they'll beat Arsenal at the weekend. Uh, we have two games tonight. Everton take on Newcastle at 7.30 and Tottenham take on West Ham at quarter past eight so both of them should be good obviously 
Newcastle looking to win to get themselves back closer to the top four. A win will mean they're only one point behind Man City. Everton need a win to climb out of the bottom three, but I don't think you'd fancy them really to beat Newcastle. Uh, Tottenham against West Ham. Spurs looking to get level on points with City. City will still have the goal difference advantage, but also looking to win for the first time after, you know, three straight defeats and then the draw against City. Spurs want to get back on back on track and back to winning ways. So this will be a tough game. West Ham are no pushover, but they're also not all that good. I know they sit ninth in the league, but they've had some really shaky results. You know, the, the recent wins are over Forest and West Ham. I thought they were very poor against Crystal Palace. They were poor against Brentford. They lost to Everton. They got hammered by Aston Villa. I think I think Spurs win tonight. I think Newcastle and Spurs win tonight. Um, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we'll do some listeners' questions. We'll do some gossip and we'll be done. It'll be a shorter pod today by the looks of things. So that's fine. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So it is questions day. So we have a couple on Discord. I know I got one on Twitter, but I fear I have lost it. Uh, Yeah, I fear. Oh, I fear I have lost the question I was sent for. On, on Twitter and uh, let me see okay I'm just going to answer this one because it was sent in by Stephen Smith it was actually for the Daily Red and I forgot to do it um, could Liverpool start to see Dominic Zabozlai pushed on to the flank in readiness for Mo Salah's departure to AFCON I suspect he could start left wing tonight that was before yesterday's game after being withdrawn early on Sunday and the front three all playing 90. A new defensive midfielder in January would facilitate an extra midfielder into the eights and thus allow Dom to play right wing for that month. Or do you see Harvey Elliott slash Diogo Jota as the more likely? A defensive midfielder just brings brings more than the obvious uh, plus points. Do you agree? Yeah, so let's answer that second part first. So people have this idea in their heads that a defensive midfielder only helps you defensively, but it doesn't. The defensive midfielder makes you better going forward as well because they <clears throat> provide a platform for you to press off and to play off. You look at the great teams in history that had great defensive midfielders, and they were also exceptional going forward. And a big part of that is that platform, that defensive solidity. And when you have that, you can commit your fullbacks further forward. You can commit your number eights further forward. You don't have to be as concerned about what's behind when you've got someone there like a Rodri, a Busquets, a Roy Keane, a Gilberto Silva, a Frank Rijkaard, people like this. You don't need to be as concerned. Liverpool with Fabinho for years could commit extra bodies forward knowing that he was behind them. So City with Fernandinho were exactly the same. So, yeah, I, I think a defensive midfielder brings you that. Like with Liverpool's current situation, it would also free Alexis McAllister up to play more of his natural role as an eight. So they'd have Alexis, Curtis Jones, Harvey Elliott, Dominic Zabozle and Ryan Gravenberg as eight options. And when he comes back, Stefan Besetic could play as an eight because that's 
what he is, though the eights in this Liverpool shape don't really suit him. He'd suit more the Trent Alexander-Arnold role, but Thiago could play as one of the eights if and when he ever comes back. So yeah, defensive midfielder helps that massively. Also frees up the opportunities to move Dominic and Harvey into the attacking third. I would be in favour of trying Dom on the wing um, but for AFCON. I think you could also try Luis Diaz on the right and maybe that sparks him back into a bit of form because he's been quite poor this season. You could play Dominic on the left in that scenario. Uh, I'd quite like to see Dominic play on the left with the current group, with, with Mo in the team. I'd like to see Mo, Darwin, Dominic. And then in midfield, maybe you go Alexis, Endo, Curtis Jones, obviously with the, the hope to upgrade on Endo in January. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be against Dominic pl- uh, get playing in the front three, left or right. I think he can do a job both sides. Um, certainly right side could be interesting. Could be very interesting when Mo's gone because, I mean, to lose that calibre of player for a prolonged period is is always tough. But it does not a huge chunk of games. It's more who the games are against. Liverpool played Chelsea and I believe Arsenal in the time that Mo was slated to be away. Um, okay, Matt JT. <clears throat> if the Premier League did the following NHL style awards, who do you think would be the current front runners so far this season? So you've got the Hart Memorial, which is the MVP, the Calder Award, which is for Rookie of the Year, the Vicina, which is for the best goalkeeper, the Selk, which is for the best defensive forward, Adams, which is for the best coach, Norris, which is for the best defender, which can we can we name that after Bobby Orr at this point? Because clearly the greatest defender in NHL history. Uh, the Gregory for the best GM, the Lady Bing, which is for sportsmanship, the Messier for on-field leadership, and the Masterson, which is for basically like a comeback player of the year. So, right, let's start with, with the Hart Memorial. So an MVP. Who has been the MVP of the league this season? I think you can make a really strong argument for probably Madison's injury takes him out of the mix. But I look at Villa and Douglas Louise and how good he's been. I think he'd be at least a ballot option. I think Rodri in the fact that even though he's not, he wouldn't be in my team of the season so far, the fact that City have lost four games this season and they've all been for the games where he was suspended, that proves how valuable he is to them. So that's kind of his case. More what his team are when he's not there. Like when he is there, they're the best team in the league. When he's not, they're fourth. Um, So he'd have to be in. I think Bikayo Saka has been carrying a big load for Arsenal this season. So he'd be in. And I think Van Dijk and Salah would both have to be in. If I had to pick a front runner, I'd probably go Salah. You you could also include Erling Haaland just based on the goals, but I, I think I'd go I think I'd go Mohamed Salah so far 
when you look at the goals, the assists, and everything else that he does, I think it would be him. Uh, rookie of the year. So we're looking at either a player new into the division or a breakthrough academy graduate. Um, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to overlook Musa Diaby and what he's done. I think he's been outstanding. But I think Papi Matar Sar, if I can count him, because he did play prior to this, but this is the first year where he was sort of uh, given a regular starting role. Um, he played 11 times last year. He's already played 12 in the Premier League this season. If I if I can't have him, I'll go... If, it, if we can go like the baseball way where you can play a certain amount of games one year and then still count as Rookie of the Year the next year, then we'll go Papa Matarsar. If you can't, I'll go Musa Diaby, who I think has been phenomenally good. Um... Arsenal signings weren't new. Liverpool, I mean, Sabozlai's been great, but I, I don't think he's been quite as good recently. Yeah, we'll we'll go Sar or Diaby, depending on what the allowance is. Uh, goalie is Allison, and it's Allison by a country mile. Um, best defensive forward. I mean, I don't want to seem like I'm just picking Liverpool players, but Darwin is hard to beat. Uh, but Ollie Watkins has been been is great at that as well. I would have said Youngman, somebody scored an own goal the other day. Uh, Rasmus Hoysland in terms of defending for the opponent, pretty good, pretty good. Um, do you know who? I talked about him earlier and the fact he's scoring goals and he seems to be enjoying himself again. But Raul Jimenez is brilliant defensively. Brilliant defensively. He did misplace a header against Liverpool that led directly to a goal. But I don't think you can blame him for that because it's one of the goals of the season. I'll go with Raul Jimenez for best defensive forward. Um, The Adams Award for best coach, it has to be Unai Emery. And it's Unai Emery by a country mile. A country mile. The guy's done an unbelievable... Nobody has done a better job in England since the moment he took over at Villa. They are such a good team and he's doing an incredible job. Defender is Virgil. Uh, So that's the Norris Award. GM. I mean, Monchi hasn't been at Villa long enough to really have had a huge impact. Kind of came in at the end of the window. So it wouldn't be him despite the fact he's done that they've done a really good job rebuilding. Um, Chiki Bergerstein's been exceptional for the few years, but obviously they haven't had a great season thus far. Dan Ashworth, you could look at it at Newcastle. I think he's done very, very well. I think I'll go Dan Ashworth at Newcastle. I think I'll go with him. Because I don't think you can make a strong case for Edu. He overpaid on Rice. He overpaid on Havertz. Havertz has been poor. Timber hasn't played. The the Raya thing. Uh, and he, uh, the new contract for Ramsdale as well. Like I don't think you can go with him. Uh, sportsmanship. 
sportsmanship. I think I would go Bakayo Saka. I get the feeling everybody likes Bakayo Saka. And he plays the game the right way. He doesn't hurl himself on the ground and doesn't roll around like Grealish or anything like that. He gets kicked a lot, but I think I'd go with him. Uh, Messier for the on-field leadership award. I mean, Odegaard always stands out for me for on-field leadership. He's always the one that lifts Arsenal. But McGinn deserves mention. Virgil deserves mention. Last on the list would be Bruno. I mean, last in the league would be Bruno Fernandes. I think I'd go Martin Odegaard. I think I'd go Martin Odegaard. And kind of the Masterson for comeback player of the year, Pedro Neto. Pedro Neto, without a shadow of a doubt, it's him. It's him. Um, so, yeah, there we go. <laughs> right, AMK 2889. What decade would you say has been the prime of football so far? Do you think that decade can be topped? Also, frequently when I watch Liverpool home games, every so often I'll hear over the PA system something about Operation Anfield exercise. What is that? So, Operation Anfield exercise is basically the operation to evacuate Anfield should there be a bomb threat, a fire, an explosion in the kitchens or you know any kind of major threat where they need to get everybody out. And the idea is that they need to be able to empty the stadium in like under five minutes. So Operation Anfield exercise is for the stewards to go to the places in the ground that they've been assigned should they need to evacuate the ground. Um, It often leads to visiting fans performing stretches and lunges, which is quite amusing, but that's what it is. It's basically if the worst happens here and we need to evacuate the ground, let's run through the practice and they do it every game. Sometimes they do it twice a game, but that is what that is. As for the best decade, I mean, the 80s had great international tournaments. It also, in my view, had the best team of all time with Saki's Milan. You had some really interesting winners of the European Cup in a way that I don't think we'll ever see again. Like, you go back and you look at who won the finals in the 80s. So it is... Nottingham Forest in in 80, going back to back. Liverpool, Aston Villa, Hamburg, Liverpool, Juventus, Steuerbuchrest, Porto, PSV Eindhoven, and then Milan go back to back to lead us to 1990. You'll never see Nottingham Forest, Hamburg, Steuerbuchrest, or PSV win the Champions League again. It's highly unlikely that Porto will win it again. It's highly unlikely that Villa will win it again. Liverpool, Juve and Milan, they're all mega clubs. But to have that sort of diversity was great. In the 90s, obviously, Milan win in 90. Red Star, Barca, Marseille, Milan, Ajax, Juve, Dortmund, Real, United and Real win 99-2000. You won't see Red Star win it again. 
I have a tough time seeing Ajax win it again. But all the rest realistically could. The issue for me with the 80s, which I think would be my pick, is Heisel and Hillsborough. So it's hard to call something where there's two enormous tragedies like that, the peak of the game. So I'll go with the 1990s because we did have really good international tournaments. The World Cup in 90 was great. Euro 92 was great. The World Cup in 94 was great. Euro 96 is one of the best tournaments ever, maybe the best. 98 World Cup was great. And then even the 2000 Euros was pretty good. So we had great international tournaments. We had good um, European Cups, UEFA Cups, Cup Winners Cups. It was a tough time to be a Liverpool fan because your biggest rival was dominant in English football, but the 90s were fantastic. And like you think of the players that were they were there. The 80s, though, like Maradona in his peak in the 80s, Hullet, Van Basten and Rijkaard at Milan, Zico, like that, that's really tough to beat what we had in the 80s. The 90s were great and we had wonderful players and you had the emergence of Ronaldo and Zidane and Rivaldo and George Weah winning African player or winning a world player of the year the first time and only time an African player has won it. The 80s or the 90s, that's that's when I, I would actually say, you know, I'll, I'll go with the 90s. I'll go with the 90s. Even though the 80s, I think, had a bit more of a curiosity about it because you had, I think, just more diversity in terms of who was winning what, you know, in in all competitions, European and domestic across the major leagues. But I'll, I'll go with the uh, I'll go with the nineties. I do think that is the the right answer. Um, speaking of winning things, just because I mentioned it yesterday, congrats to Palmieri's who won the Brazilian Serie A title last night. Uh, they got a draw against Cruzeiro. Grêmio ended up winning, and they finish in second led by Luis Suarez. Atletico Monero failed to win last night. They actually didn't fail to win. They lost, as did Flamengo, as did Botafogo, and as did Fluminense. So some some queer results last night in Brazil. But what an, <clears throat> what an achievement by Abel Ferreira. So congrats to him. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the Mauritian one. I recently watched the docu-film La Bella Stagione, which depicts Sampdoria's title in 1991, and that team was quite special with Pagliuca, Viecovod, Lombardo, Viali, and Mancini. I saw that the transfer policy was quite impressive as well. They sold Pagliuca, Jugovic, Hullet, Platt, Lombardo, brought in Chiesa, Zenga, Karambu, Seedorf, they also signed, yeah, you've you mentioned that, they sold Seedorf and Chiesa, brought in Veron and Montella. Uh, how did Sampdoria contribute to the narrative of Italian football during the 90s? And why were they unable to con- consi- uh, constantly break into the top three or four? Uh, lastly, Sampdoria, if it's so many great kits, will be your top three. Okay, so I uh, fully agree with what you said about the transfer policy. The issue is, 
that they always had like five or six really good players, a couple of average ones, and a couple that were well below par. They never fully had the strength and depth. They never had the financial backing. Like they were always having to sell in order to buy, sell one to buy two. And they never quite got to the point where they could sell one to buy one or not sell anybody to buy one. And there was a lot of financial mismanagement of that club, as we've seen in, in recent years, once again. But back then, I think money was just been, was been filtered out of the club. And they constantly found themselves in debt. Like they sold Sadorf and Chiesa, bring in Veron and Montella, and there's money that went missing there. That they should have been able to buy a third player and continue to strengthen. So their issue always was that they just couldn't they just couldn't fill out the team. They were like a slightly lesser version of Parma where Parma had money been pumped in and they were selling and, and reinvesting it. They were selling and reinvesting, but money wasn't been put in on top of it. So it's the old Rafa Benitez thing about having the duvet that's not quite long enough to cover your head and your, your feet. Um, they just, they never had quite the right amount of money to be able to buy the left back that they might have needed or the winger that they might have needed. So they'd have a really good spine, but the flanks would be poor. And unfortunately for them, that's just how it went. In terms of best kits, let me have a quick look at this. I have to say, I do like I do like the new one. I think the new kit is is a really cool throwback to the great kits they've had in the past. Um, the Asics kits are obviously the the best that they've had. Let's go back down the years and find we're going to be looking for. So to be fair, some of the Kappa kits they had were very cool as well. Um, I would say the 1991 title winning home kit. The 94-95 away kit. The 96-97 third kit, the black one. Maybe my favorite is the 97-98 special kit they did, which is half blue, half white, with no sponsors logo. Really, really like that one. Um... And you know what? 87, 88 away, white with the two blue and one red stripe running down the right-hand side. We'll go with that. It has, it has a better collar, I think, than the ones that came before it. Do you know what's funny? is back then you look at a kit and for three years they had the same kit. You know, their kit, their away kit didn't really change from 82, 83 up until 87, 88. Just stayed the same. I, I like that, actually. So I'll go with that one. 
the one that stayed the same and meant people weren't having to fork out every year. Um, but yeah, the, the bigger thing is is why they couldn't quite compete. They just couldn't. They could never quite get the full team to the level it needed to be at. You also have to remember it was an incredibly strong period in Syria. You had great Juve teams, great Napoli, uh, great Milan teams. You had a strong Napoli for the first part of the decade when they had uh, Maradona. You had very strong Inter teams. You had Parma. You had Fiorentina. You had both Rome clubs. Like There was so much competition for resources, for players. Even like Torino would have the odd really good season. Atalanta would have the odd good season. Syria was just, it was it was a war back then. It was just such a strong league. Um, Isaac Gilding, question for the pod. You've mentioned several times that your favourite player ever is Michael Laudrup, who's possibly the most graceful player ever. But we also know of your love for Suarez and Tevez, scrappy types of strikers. Do you, uh, types of players. Do you think one playing style is superior to the other? Other than Laudrup, do you have a favourite graceful and scrappy player? And if a team of high-end graceful players play a team of high-end scrappy players, who do you think might come out on top? I think a team of high-end scrappy players will always win the day. I do subscribe to the thought process that you only need three lads that can play the piano and eight lads that can carry the piano. But I think if you've got 11 piano carriers, they will beat 11 piano players. So I'll go for team of high-end scrappy players. Give me give me big bruising brutes. Um, other than Laudrup, favourite graceful player is Zidane. Uh, after him, Baggio. They'd be my top three in terms of... And Kaka would be in that mix as well, but he'd be fourth. But Zidane and Baggio would be the next two. Dennis Burkamp would round out the top five for certain. Uh, scrappy players. Um, Tevez. Suarez, obviously. Mascherano. Carlos Puyol. Roy Keane. Like, if that's my team of scrappy lads, nobody's beating them. Nobody's beating them. Um, I don't think there's one correct way of playing, but I would rather have a team of scrappers than a team of graceful players. As beautiful as the football might be with that team of graceful players, I prefer functionality. So I think the team of scrappy players would win. And that's it. That's all we have for today. So I will see you all tomorrow. Uh, I'm recording that immediately after this because I'm not available tomorrow. So it is just going to be the predictions for the week. Myself and Guy will go through the 10 games. But I'm sure we'll go on a tangent somewhere because it's what we do. So, uh, yeah, see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Network.